you ever wonder how some of the greatest people today become who they are? Most everyone has experienced that turning point in their life. It's these moments that forever changed who they were into whom they've become. Today on The Moment with Chris Epting, you'll hear from these people and hopefully be inspired to find your own life-changing moment. Now, here is your host, Chris Epting. And thank you again for joining me today on this pre-Thanksgiving show. And I want to thank my my guest, who's who's a really interesting guy. Um, Many of you probably know Jack Grisham as one of the founding members of the all-time classic punk band, T-S-O-L. And Jack and I both live in Huntington Beach. Jack, Jack, by the way, thank you for joining me today. You're welcome. It's good to be here. Thank you. So we're both, we both live in Huntington Beach, and I know that you love history like I do. We're about the same age, so... You know, we've, we've been through not the same things, but at least the same cultural things that have gone on. In fact, right before we started chatting here, you were, you were cranking some Delphonics back there. And we had a brief <laughs> chat about how, you know, that, that soul stuff in the early 70s was great radio and just how funny it is that that's what you would be listening to, which is probably not what a lot of people would expect. <laughs> no, not at all. And it's funny because I, I was, well, I still am a, a big Luther Vandross fan. And, uh, and I actually got to go one time. <laughs> it was like, I took two friends of mine. I went and saw Luther and a, a friend of mine got me orchestra pit seats right in the front. And, uh, and Luther walked down and he walked in the row before me and he handed the mic. He was doing a house is not a home. And, uh, and he handed the mic to Dionne Warwick and she stands up <laughs> and I'm like totally crying. Right. And I'm, I'm with these two hardcore punk guys. These big, you know, they're just, they're laughing because I like got tears in my eyes, you know, and I go backstage and, you know, Smokey Robinson's there and Luther and a couple of the Jacksons and George Duke. It's like everybody who's anybody in Los Angeles in the R&B scene was all there. And it was like, I had died. <laughs> It's like I'm smoking weed with Philip Bailey. <laughs> like, oh, this is just this is this is it, man. That's uh, you look. That's really interesting, right there, as a snapshot of the fact that even though you're kind of known for one musical genre, obviously you appreciate a lot of stuff. You said you're a big Zappa fan, uh, big Frank Zappa fan, and and then we also share is is Let It Bleed one of your favorite? Um, yeah, yeah. For me well, too, I'm a big Stones fan, and Let Let It Bleed to me, I always go back to as as there's if. There's no other album for me that has something for everybody like Let It Bleed. I mean, Let It Bleed, pound for pound, cut for cut. There's just really, I don't think of that era, another album like it, you know? Yeah, and I, what's interesting is with that album, I, I identify more with the political upheaval at the time than I did the, like the album frightens me. Like when I put it on, because that was what was rolling on our news at the time. We had, yeah. you know, my, we had one TV, one TV back then, it was in the living room during dinner. The TV would be on. News would be rolling. You know, you got Vietnam. You got these protests. You got all this stuff going on, you know, and that record was basically the backdrop to it. Yeah, I think Gimme Shelter to me is one of the great end of the world songs, you know. And Perfect. Yeah. A few, a few weeks ago, um, I don't know if you're aware of this, but I had a guest on, a friend of mine named Bonnie Bramlett. Oh, and come on, superstar. Right. <laughs> it's superstar. Well, you know, I know, you know, she, she told me a story yeah. I'd never heard before. And what had happened, it's, it's built around it. It involves the Let It Bleed album. Um, the Delaney and Bonnie group was playing out in the San Fernando Valley, uh, Fall 69. Jagger and Richards are in town getting their tour together um, for that year. And they go see them and they right. fall, they're knocked out by her. And so they go to Delaney, her husband, and they say, look, we're, we're in, the, in the studio 
uh, we have a session tomorrow night. We would love Bonnie to come down and, and work on this part with us for a song. And he said, great. So uh, Bonnie goes in there and it's Gimme Shelter. And they've got the lyric of the female portion there in the middle. Right. And Bonnie kind of arranges how it's going to sound, how it's going to feel. And Delaney comes into the studio. By now he's been drinking that night. And he flips out because now like a switch is flipped and it's no longer this great opportunity. Now he's jealous that she's hanging out with these British rock stars. And he literally drags her out of the studio after they've recorded a couple of takes of that really riveting, you know, vocal part in the the bridge there. And on the way out, she basically says, and he says, call Mary Clayton. If you need somebody else, that's who you got to call. So the Stones don't know what to do. They call this number and they, you know, rouse this woman who I think she's eight months pregnant at that point. Right, right. She right. comes in yeah. and they basically play her Bonnie's part and she just mimics what Bonnie Bramlett was doing. So for Bonnie, it's this unbelievable missed opportunity, you know, to have been part of, uh, like you say, a song that was really reflecting um, the social mores of the time. Like for all the songs that were going on, Give Me Shelter to Me really encapsulates that, that you know, Vietnam, everything going on at that point in 69. You're coming out of the, the Manson murders, all of this really crazy um, tumultuous things happening, men landing on the moon. I mean, that year, you know, Woodstock, so many things going on, including the war and great social upheaval. But, uh, but yeah, when I saw that you liked that album, that one for me, it just never gets old and there's so much going on. But, but getting back, Jack, you, you wrote something. You, on you don't want to, wait, you oh. don't want to talk about Superstar first? Well, Superstar. <laughs> well, speak, see, that was my, you know, the Carpenters, Superstar that they wrote, that, that the Carpenters later did, that Luther Vandross did. And oh, Luther that's Van- right. That's, yeah. I forgot he did that. Yeah, he did it. Yeah. And, yeah. And so anyway, go on. Sorry. No, no, no. Superstar, Bonnie wrote that with Leon Russell. Right. And it became a huge hit for the Carpenters, really one, like, one of their signature songs. And I didn't know Luther did it. I, I don't know if you knew about Luther Vandross. He started um, as a background vocalist, first for Todd Rundgren. Actually, no, first for David Bowie. Right. And the Young American Sessions. Right. Which are, I mean, if you listen to Luther on, there's a song called Fascination that's like, yeah. Incredible. <laughs> and then well, he went out with Todd Rundgren. Luther had these like great kind of prog classic rock chops before developing into his own, his own thing like that. But, uh, well, he was, then, we just, I just covered uh, with some friends of mine. Uh, a lot of, lot of great guys. We actually just covered um, Can You Hear Me off of Bowie's um, uh, Young Americans record. And really? when we were, and, and we stayed it, I'll, I'll send it to you. So, and we, we stayed true to form, like crazily true to form. We used, we used choir, we used all the back, but then we're having to like redo like Luther's background parts. And, uh, and it was just <laughs> Like, That's amazing. How can you do this? You know, but it's uh, amazing. I mean, that album. I think for uh, you're obviously, I'm guessing a pretty big Bowie fan, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Young Americans. I think we're, again, we're if that when that album comes out. You and I are like 12 years old, something like that. 12, 13 years old. And Bowie was still like a really dangerous, you know, kind of mystical kind of figure, I think, to us kids. But yeah. Young Americans was such an amazing head fake to go from Ziggy. And, and um, I guess right after Diamond Dogs to go right into Philly and Sigma Sound and transform himself into that guy. Uh, the other thing, too, is amazing on that record is he decided to not use a lead guitar player and instead let David Sanborn saxophone sort of be that, be that lead instrument. So he was just, I mean, coming up with things that were so crazy. I want to hear what you guys did with that tune. 
Well, it was, well, and what was interesting too, I, I like, I've had a chance to meet like a lot of my heroes or whatever, like from when I was a kid, you know, and actually meet and talk to these guys. So I played uh, Hunt Sales, uh, the drummer, he played in Tin Machine. Right. Well, I, I played with Hunt for like a year. Like we played together for a long time and I, I'm still friends with Hunt. We still talk. Was he his said, brother, was Tony there as well? Like when, did you play with Tony too? I didn't play, I didn't play with Tony, just, uh, just with Hunt. But I, you know, ran into Tony a couple times and Michael DeBars hanging out. That little crew, you know, they're, they're pretty tight. And, um, you know, Hunt still said that some of the best stuff to me he's ever said. Like, like one time we were dealing with the Geffen records for some stuff. Hunt and I was, and were, and I, you know, I was really having a hard time going along, like, like just, you know, like doing what people want of me. I'm not a big fan of that. So, so it was really like breaking me and I was getting pissed off and, and I was getting really depressed and whatever. And Hunt says, look, man, he goes, you've been playing hardball your whole life. Don't start playing softball now. He just, <laughs> you know, just wow. like, he's like, be an asshole, man. Go with it. That's what you are, you know? And, and the other thing he said to me one time I loved, he said, he said, you know what, Jack? He goes, one day you're going to find yourself and you're not going to be too happy about it. Wow. <laughs> I just, yeah, he was really fun, but we were playing a show one time. So, so we're playing this show and we're up at like the, I think the club lingerie or whatever. And all of a sudden, in walks Bowie and Amon. So they walk into the room and, you know, the whole room's on them. And then, and then we went backstage. And so they were all, they were hanging out backstage with us. And, uh, and we were singing songs and screwing around. And he was the nicest gentleman. And, and the cool thing is you could really see, like, how much they loved each other. And, uh, and then I got invited. Uh, they invited me to go over to this movie they were filming the next day and, uh, you know, I stopped by and, you know, just a really good, nice, you know, and we didn't talk about, you know, anything other than just what's, you know, like you talk about somebody's wherever you run into somebody on the pier, (laughs) you know, you're just having a, you're just having a chat. It was, it was really nice. Yeah. That's amazing. You mentioned that you've had a chance to meet certain people you grew up with that you admired. I mean, Bowie being one of them. Are there another couple of anecdotes like that, that things that caught you off guard of people that you meant a lot to you that you met and they didn't let you down or maybe even did let you down? Well, no. Yeah. Like, well, okay. So Iggy, Iggy was, was pretty funny. I ran into Iggy in Atlanta. Uh, it was like, well, it was almost 40 years ago. And he came into the club wearing a bathrobe, you know, <laughs> just, you know, so he and we sat backstage and just, and just bullshitted for just a while about how to get the Berlin sound. He goes, let me tell you how we got that sound, you know, that him and Bowie were doing. And he was talking mic placement and where they put the drums and how he sang through this, you know, and it was just, you know, it's just kind of cool. It was just, just, uh, you know, just the opportunity to just hang out and chat was pretty fun. Yeah, that's amazing. I remember Iggy told me once that when he finally had some money together, that he purchased a big screen TV. That for him was the fantasy that you knew you made it if you had a really big (laughs) TV. And he gets it. And he's living in Florida. And it's not that long ago, relatively. And he he gets it mounted. He goes, he's so excited. He's going to fire it up. He sits back in a lounge chair that he got, a chair just to watch the big screen. And he puts it on. And the very first thing that comes up, the first images transmitted on the big screen, it's 9-11. And it's the planes hitting (laughs) 
And Iggy goes, that's my, that's my baptism of my big screen is why it was a total Iggy uh, yeah. moment. Um, Jack, you wrote something the other day that I saw a, a post on Facebook that I want to read part of right here because it got a lot of attention um, with people who follow you. And it speaks to what you're doing right now, which we'll get to. And it says, uh, quote, and for all of you that talk about writing books, but don't, when I started playing punk rock, I had no idea how to be in a band. I was a self-absorbed, self-conscious kid. The thought of getting on stage terrified me. But also, when I was a young boy, I sang along to the radio and pretended to be a rocker. So I had desire, blanketed by fear. One day, I grabbed the mic and started screaming, albeit in a far British accent. My legs were shaking. I was embarrassed as fuck. I couldn't sing. But I wasn't going to let embarrassment create regret. 41 years later, I'm still doing it, even though I still have stage fright. So what's this got to do with writing books? I liked to write when I was a boy, although I was told in school that I would never be a writer. I still don't know the difference between a past particle or a predicate. I don't even know if those things are real. And I'm a one finger typist. My punctuation is shit and I still sing off key. But again, I wasn't going to let embarrassment or lack of talent stop me from taking a shot. The only difference between me and the person who always wanted to be in a band or write a book is I jumped in and I did it. I might've still given a fuck to what you thought, but not enough to let your opinion stop me from living. So jump in and do what you want. Join me in sticking a middle finger up to those cowardly fucks who are too scared to follow their desires. Let them end their lives in regret, not you. And by the way, it's always those last few chapters that kick your ass. Unquote. So here you've got this, I think, really powerful soliloquy that speaks to just the act of doing it, the act and art of doing it. What is it you're doing right now? What are you writing that prompted you to put this out? Well, I'm in the middle of another book. Yeah, I'm just, uh, I, I'm, you know, I'm in that, well, I'm not even in the middle of it. I'm on the last chapter. I'm just coming down. And the trouble is once, once, okay, so the way I write is I just get the characters going and then I'm just dictating. I'm not writing, I'm dictating. So whatever, wherever this is coming from in my head, like I'm as surprised as anyone else when I'm writing the stuff. It's like, okay, okay. So one day I was writing this story and I'm writing and the guy's going to murder this woman who was trying to set him up to be murdered, you know, this whole thing. And, uh, and he walks out to the trunk and he opens the trunk and it's like, oh, and there's a body laying in there. So I didn't know there was a body in the trunk. I didn't know that was going to pop up. But do I dictate right almost through my head, wherever's coming from, you know, alien voices coming down. And uh, so sometimes when I know the ending of the book, it's hard to keep going. It's like, oh, I'm already done. I don't, I don't care. So you, yeah, you, you create characters in your mind that sort of you let run free and you've just got to be there basically to take dictation as the action flows forth, right? Exactly. It's like I, I read this thing one time. I can't remember who said it, but they said if you create the characters and place them in a room, they will be who they are. And it's so interesting that even though it's a fictional, a fictional, a fictional, you know what I mean, character, uh, if you try to make them do something that they're not supposed to do, it just doesn't seem right. right. Like, like it's like, oh, that's not right. He'd not do, he wouldn't do that. So Anyway, and this is the first time I've ever written a murder mystery, kind of like going back to the Thin Man and, and uh, the Maltese Falcon and that kind of stuff. So I thought, hey, I'm just going to give it a shot, man. I'm going to try it. I like those books. I'm going. 
So you like so, kind of the noir aspect of something, the darkness and sort of. Well, in photography, I've always shot like this. So I'm a photographer also. So uh, I, any job that you can't make money at, I, I adopt. <laughs> you master. <laughs> That's like, I try master. <laughs> being a musician, being a writer, being a photographer, just pick one, you know, pick one. And, uh, you know, it's, it's funny. I had a friend one time tell me, he goes, oh, my God. He goes, you work so much harder at not having a job than I work at having a job. You know, because you're always hustling, you know. And, uh, but I've always liked that noir kind of look in photography, the heavy shadows and the angles. So, so then I was drawn to that in writing, I guess, also. So, uh, you know, Raymond Chandler and Dashiell Hammett and, you know, those guys. And uh, Oh, totally. I, I watched Double Indemnity the other night. I hadn't seen it in a while. And I forgot how that holds up as kind of a noir classic when there, there really was a danger to those films and, and an eeriness to, to the characters that was uh, really powerful. Even with a guy like Fred McMurray, who we, we would grow later, you know, to love and like a My Three Sons, you know, you forget just how diabolical he could be. <laughs> in yeah, like yeah. Very similar. There's a film called A Face in the Crowd starring Andy Griffith. And we know him as, you know, Sheriff Andy Taylor in The Andy Griffith Show, but face of the crowd he's this megalomaniacal lunatic you know yeah over and and it's it's interesting those from the 40s and 50s you had a lot of great examples like that of uh of great noir filmmaking of great kind of dark edgy filmmaking that i don't think you have as, as much of today quite honestly yeah well yeah no you don't at all and you know the fun thing is it's just you know when i got into it writing it i started realizing just how much it was just like a dark soap opera <laughs> You know, yeah. Like, you know, characters are OK to pop up and strange things are allowed to happen. And like and it was his cousin. You know, but it's like, all about the woman. It's all yeah, always by, by the woman, you know. Exactly. And, and you know, the character I got in this new story, he he has a couple of them. So it's, uh, you know, and, and what's funny is because because maybe in my background, I had gotten in trouble uh, a couple of times with the police and um you know, so I was able to take my experiences and what I said to them oh. and then and then use it in the story. And then I also had background. So I would call up. Uh, I have a, a friend who's an, an officer in San Francisco. And so I'd call him and say, hey, how do you answer the phone? How do you do this? Would you ever do this? And, uh, you know, forgetting like deeper background stuff. Jack, we're going to a quick break. My guest is okay. Jack Grisham. We're going to come back and talk about how the music first started. My name is Chris Epting, and this is The Moment. Thanks for listening. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Chris Epting will be releasing the third edition of his best-selling baseball travel Bible, Roadside Baseball, in June 2019. Academy Award-nominated director Ken Burns said about Roadside Baseball, What a wonderful book. All the stations of the cross of our national pastime are here, big and small, telling and frivolous. I can imagine this book in the glove compartment of every true fan's car. A handy reference to this beloved game, no matter where in the country you are. The new edition features hundreds of new places to discover, more rare photos, stories, and trivia. It's everything you need to plan the baseball road trip of your dreams. Roadside Baseball, coming this June. Available for pre-order right now on Amazon.com. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. 
Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. You are listening to The Moment with Chris Epting. If you have a question or comment about our show, please send an email to Chris at chrisepting.com. That's chris at chrisepting.com. Now, back to The Moment. Thank you for joining me and my super special guest today, Jack Grisham, punk rock legend from TSOL. Among many other things, has written many books and involved in film and is just all over the map artistically, which I love. Jack, um, we, uh, I want to take me back a little bit again. We both live in Huntington Beach. Take me back to late seventies, early eighties, when you're first getting the band together. What's the music scene like, not just in Huntington, but in Orange County that you remember? Um, and, and more importantly, how you helped shape it with your band. We'll, we'll go there as well, but start talking out, kind of set the stage for us, the people that weren't there. I was on the East coast growing up at places like CBGB's and Max's Kansas city, but it was a lot different locally, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, well, I got I got great CB stories for it too. But uh, you know, I was thinking when we we're I, I just mentioned that I was I was using this uh, this officer up in San Francisco for deep background or whatever, and we we're talking about arrests or whatever, and, and then it it all of a sudden made me thought. So I think for I think it was 2010 2011, I won the Distinguished Artist Award for Huntington Beach, and. Uh, yeah. But what was funny is I've been in that jail like seven or eight times. <laughs> so so you know, it's like, you know, seven or eight arrests. And then, and then the, they're giving me this award signed by the mayor. And, so, and then I was thinking on, uh, you know, the, the Huntington Beach history thing, which I just love so much. I love the page. I just love it. I, I adore it. Uh, cool. There used to be the donut shop. So the donut shop in the Seacliff Shopping Center, where the new Seas Candy is now going in. Right. So there used to there used to be a donut shop there. So then in the in the late seventies, early eighties, uh, they would kick everyone out of the jail in the morning. So let's say you had been arrested and you were drunk or whatever. So they're going to kick you out. Well, so everybody that got OR'd out of the jail would go over to the donut shop. <laughs> so, wow. so in the donut shop, everyone, you know, having coffee and donuts, all these guys had just been released, you know, from jail. It was actually pretty funny. You'd always go over there and there'd be, you know, everybody at the yeah, donut that's, shop. That's hidden Huntington Beach right there in a nutshell. <laughs> that's right. That's right. You know, and I got a great, you know, and, and you know, going to the, I don't know, when Jack Kelly, so Jack Kelly was Maverick. He used to be the mayor of Huntington Beach, and uh, and I got a great picture. I was trying to find it was in my mom's house, and she, my mom died a couple of years ago, and I, I, the picture hasn't shown up yet, but it's me and Jack Kelly drinking together, you know, with our arms around each other, having a cocktail at this party, you know, and he was, I, you know, I don't know of him long term, but at that moment on that evening, he was really fun. Cause we were having cocktails and talking shit, you know, and you know, he's a good looking guy, charismatic, you know, and, and we're at, a, you know, had a great, great evening. Yeah. Jack, what was it like when you get the band together? Um, what are the venues you're playing? How does that come together? I know it's places are all gone today, but take well, us back to when the band is first starting, where you guys would first play and just what it was like. Well, most of the first places we were playing were house parties. 
Right. So it was all house. Like I'm still a fan of house parties. I, I, I grew up like I laugh when I get on stage, I'll go to these concerts and you know, these punk bands, right. you know, you guys didn't see me do quotation marks, but I did. <laughs> so these punk bands are crying about their monitor mix or the sound or the catering. I'm like, what the hell, man, what do you need these monitors for you bitches? Come on. You know, it's like, cause I grew up in, and how we're, we're, you know, the PA is getting kicked out because somebody's kicking the plug out of the wall. And, you know, there's no monitors. Everybody's in your face and there's no security. And it's like dangerous and crazy and packed. And, you know, somebody moves and the mic's hitting you in the mouth. And your lips are bleeding. You know, just that. I mean, that's how I grew up, man. So uh, so I, I've always dug that. And, and so anyway, when we first started playing, it was always parties, house parties. You go and play. I remember one time, uh, you know, T.S. Well and, ba- and Black Flag played a backyard. Uh, Circle, Jerks and Vicious, Circle Jerks and Vicious Circle played a backyard. And then we had this one house party, and it was the Vandals, T.S. Well, Agent Orange, the Adolescents, and uh, God, who else? It was some, all playing at somebody's house, you know, kids. Oh and, and the funny thing is, there wouldn't even necessarily be a bunch of cars outside. It'd be bicycles. You know, there'd be kids' bikes, you know, Schwinn's all over the yards and stuff, you know. And uh, But I think with T.S. Well, the first actual club we played at was uh, probably the Cuckoo's Nest. In Costa Mesa. In Costa Mesa. And, and I still talk to Jerry. Place. Everybody played yeah. And I still talk to Jerry. Jerry. The, the cool thing about early punk rock is there were a lot of characters you know, uh, there was one record company guy that we signed with, and he reminded me of Fagan from Oliver Twist. You know, he's ripping off these young boys and, you know, he's, you know, he's because he's stealing their music and he's doing something. And and yeah, am I pissed because he stole stuff? Sure. But also the literary angle of it, you know, is kind of like, oh, oh, God, I get to work with Fagan. I'm almost like coming out of a Dickens tale. So it was kind of cool. Right, Jack, were you thinking about fiction writing back in the middle of all of that craziness? Did you consider yourself a writer in addition to a guy who fronted a really popular punk band? No, not at all. I, I didn't. You know, the first person that even talked to me about writing was Grant Hart from Husker Du. Uh, of all people, Grant gave me a small... Um, thes- like a thesaurus. He gave me a small rhyming dictionary and it, it didn't even a book. It was like, almost like uh, there was no cover to it. And uh, he gave it to me and started talking to me about writing. And uh, I never thought about it. And, and it even, even all the way up until uh, when I wrote my first book, I, I never thought about writing, you know, yeah, I'd write lyrics or whatever, but you know, you know, give me the cheese, give me the trees, fuck the police. That's pretty easy. <laughs> so, so it wasn't until I actually sat down and, and wrote a book. And it was funny, the first book I wrote, my, this girl, Kate, she was editing for me and she was great. Um, I would give her each chapter. And the first chapter I gave her just had red lines, all like was all red line. And then as the book progressed, the red lines got less and less. And then I gave her a chapter, one of the last chapters, and I gave it to her, and uh, there were hardly any red lines on it at all. And I go, hey, you're not doing your job. And she goes, no, you're doing yours. Wow. <laughs> it's like, you know, so I basically learned by writing, you know, and that's kind of what that post was about, was just telling people, hey, jump in, 
just jump in and do it, man. It doesn't it, matter. It, it struck me because as someone who's written books myself, you know, when you do like a, a book signing or something, there's always invariably a couple of people who say, you know what? Um, I have a book in me and one day I'm going to write it and da, da, da. And you sit and you listen and you say, well, what are, why are you talking about it? You know, because talking about it's one thing, but it's never going to find its way to paper if you just stop talking about it and go do it. So I totally related to it because, again, there's people that, that talk about doing it and then people who actually go and do it. And, and it does take guts at a certain point and it's, there's risks involved, but, but why not? You know, and you've certainly never avoided risks. You know, I mean, early, I think it's hard for people to understand how physically dangerous the early punk scene was. I mean, more in LA, obviously, but what you guys were doing beyond the music was, it was physically challenging too, right? I mean, it wasn't, you know, you were putting right. yourself out there every night. And, and if, if anybody ever read, I mean, your book, Henry Rollins wrote a great book about his first couple of years and Black Flag. And the physical challenges, I mean, it was not not an easy life from that standpoint either, was it? No, and it wasn't. I, I mean, punk rock at the beginning <laughs> attracted, let's say, a, a darker element. <laughs> you, know <what> I mean? <laughs> a little, you know, a lot of people that were really out of their minds, man. I mean, because back then, to even take that step into looking like that, not just listening to the music, but adopting that that whole lifestyle and that look or whatever, well, you were you know, instant opposition. I, I mean, everyone hated you. Uh, punk meant gay, you know, so if you, to the criminal element, punk was gay. You say you're a punk, you're saying you're gay. You know, the police hated you, the criminals hated you. It's like no one, you know, nobody liked you. You couldn't walk into the store without, you know, people freaking out. And then there was all this crazy media thing, you know, about punk rockers, you know, digging up graveyards. Okay, true. But punk rockers, you know, carving swastikas on babies' heads. You know, it's like, come on, man. You know, but people bought it. They believed it. And, and when they saw you, it was always confrontational. Well, I remember, too, when the first Sex Pistols record came out. I went to try and go buy it at a record store in New York. And you could, they, they would not keep it. It was behind the counter. It was like contraband, <laughs> and you had to personally request it. And some places made you like sign a release that, like, your parents knew you were getting it. And it was—you look back on it; it's it's crazy. What, what were your influences going into that sort of musical subculture? Was it the Pistols? Was it Iggy? Was it the New York Dolls? Where were you coming from musically that got you to the point that TSOL becomes a reality? Well, I was still—I I was still pop. Do you know what I mean? I was, I was still, I still like pop back then. So I'm more listening to Generation X. I was a big Adam and the Ant fan when the Ants first started out. Dirk wears white socks is is a just an unbelievable record. It's so good. So so even then in punk rock, I leaned more to the pop and the Pistols records a pop record. Totally. I've gotten into totally. I've gotten into this with so many people. It's oh. like, hey, this is a pop record, man. You know, one hundred percent. Those are those yeah. are great pop songs. I mean, they really are. Even a song like Bodies, which is really intense lyrically, if you just step back and listen to the melody, it's it's a very listenable song. It's a great rock song. That's all. Yeah, and you know, it's funny because Steve Jones, it, it, you know, is a friend, and you know, and I, I remember just like saying, "You ruined my life." <laughs> just uh whatever it, it, it's you know he you know it's funny i uh, all right we don't need to get into all that anyway but yeah but uh, but i've always been attracted more to the pop stuff instead of just the crazy shouting blah right. blah blah and and the only reason i've never really done that stuff is because i don't have that kind of voice you know it's like i i love that music but but i 
I'm not really a great singer. I'm a good performer. I'm just not a great singer. So would you now what about as far as Huntington Beach goes? I know we have a lot of people listening that are from where we are today. In terms of performances, what do you remember about the scene, whether it was Safari Sam's? Were you a golden would you go to the Golden Bear Hall? <laughs> Well, well it's funny you say Safari Sam's. I wasn't even allowed in. So it's like, so when later on, so I had a different band when Safari Sam's was going and they have it. So now it's a surf museum, but right. in the corner where, okay, you know where the parking lot is, where the big surfboard is. Yeah. Okay. So that door right there is where you loaded in the gear. <laughs> so the stage was right there at that door because the club was so small, right? right. So you take an, out the gear and load out the gear from there. But my deal with Sam is because I had been getting drunk so many times over there and causing problems that when we played, I wasn't allowed to come into the club. So you basically had to load me in with the gear. Right? So, so when we were going on stage, then I was allowed to come in and get on stage, you know, and, uh, and I got a great photo. Uh, I had come up with this wonderful idea. Um, every once in a while, I'd be, you know, maybe fought, find myself passed out somewhere outside during the day. So, so I adopted wearing a, a no pest strip around my neck. And so I figured, well, if I go down, I have the no pest strip on and the bugs will go to the no pest strip and not go to my mouth. Right. And I used to tell that story and somebody's going, you're so full of shit. That's not real. And then somebody posted a picture of me standing there with a no pest strip around my neck. That was pretty. Yeah. But so Safari Sam's was right there. And, uh, you know, and uh, okay. So just for a bad story, I will tell you one bad story. So old main street used to have all those old, it had all these old bills. I loved old main street, man. I, I just, I still, you know, I got, I have a problem with junior Newport beach that they got going on over there. So I do have an issue with that. Cause I, you know, whatever. I like the older look of things. So old main street was a little torn down and there were some apartment buildings over the stores. And so one night they were having like a, like a, like a, I don't want to say it wasn't street fair. It's just people wandering around and, you know, whoever they could get to go downtown at that time. And, but there were people out there and there was a little band playing and in the apartment place over this old like record store, I think that used to be under there. Um, they were, there was a drug house. So they're all up there doing drugs. And the last thing heroin addicts want is an alcoholic to show up. That's like, they just, just, you know, they want to lay around on the sofas being mellow, you know, and I wandered in like, let's go, you know? So I took all my clothes off and put a bag over my head and then walked out on the balcony. that was out below the building. And so it was a balcony, if you can imagine, that came almost to the edges of, of, of the main street. And so I just stood on the balcony naked and everyone's down there. And I think it was when Ferris Bueller said, just come out, right? I go, hey, check me out. You know, yell, you know, it was weird science. <laughs> so the police are down there and they see me and I'm standing there naked on the thing with a bag over my head. So then they rush the place. And of course, you know, I get out, run, jump down a couple of buildings off the roof and then go down. I get the hell out of there. And they ended up rushing this drug den. And busting everybody. Oh my God. And, and now I take that story and then fast forward to the night you're getting the award in the city. <laughs> yeah. It's like, hey, all right. But, yes. But no, it's, listen, you, you, you were not just part of the culture. You were helping create the culture with the music. And um, 
you know, a lot of bands obviously were, were influenced and inspired by TSOL. It's it's a name that that's still, you know, obviously still playing, but I mean, it's a name that people uh, look back on fondly. You, you, you became one of those building block bands that really was influential, that made a difference. Well, no, what's funny is it's, uh, I've gotten calls from like Rolling Stone or whatever, so they fact check. <laughs> you know, they, I, I, maybe they've stopped that practice lately. I, I, I don't know exactly. But when they're doing articles on these bands, um, they fact check. So I would get calls and they'd say, hey, Jack, this is so-and-so from, you know, Rolling Stone. Uh, This guy said that he used to hang out with you and go to parties with you back in 1980, so-and-so. Is that correct? And I go, yeah. (laughs) You know, it it would be some big popular band that was citing us as like an influence or whatever. So, I mean, it, it goes on. We're going to take one more quick break here. Jack, when we come back, you have a Rolling Stone story that you hinted at. And I want to talk about your sobriety, too, because you've been very open and public about what you've been through and things you've written about and all, if that's okay with you. Yeah, sure. Anything. And uh, and I'm thoroughly enjoying this. I mean, again, it's uh, it, the fact that you're even here today, that you managed to make it through all that you did. That's the win, I think, that you're... <laughs> able to tell these stories, you know, so colorfully and everything. So anyway, everybody stay with us. I'm Chris Epting. My guest today, of course, is Jack Grisham, TSOL and many of the things. This is the moment and we will be right back. Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. Chris Epting will be releasing the third edition of his best-selling baseball travel Bible, Roadside Baseball, in June 2019. Academy Award-nominated director Ken Burns said about Roadside Baseball, What a wonderful book. All the stations of the cross of our national pastime are here. Big and small, telling and frivolous, I can imagine this book in the glove compartment of every true fan's car. A handy reference to this beloved game, no matter where in the country you are. The new edition features hundreds of new places to discover more rare photos stories and trivia it's everything you need to plan the baseball road trip of your dreams roadside baseball coming this june available for pre-order right now on amazon.com have you had a chance to check out voice america's online magazine and blog if you love our hosts and shows check out articles that give an even deeper perspective plus topics about health and fitness movie reviews philosophy business tips and tactics spirituality positive thought current events and even more about your favorite hosts it's just a click away at blog.voiceamerica.com that's blog.voiceamerica.com the voice america press blog all access all the time become our friend on facebook post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline visit facebook.com forward slash voice america listening to The Moment with Chris Epting. If you have a question or comment about our show, please send an email to Chris at chrisepting.com. That's chris at chrisepting.com. Now, back to The Moment. Thank you for joining me and my guest, Jack Christian. You know, Jack, you said something earlier when you were talking about Luther Vandross. It reminded me when I was talking to Johnny Lydon, a.k.a. Johnny Rotten once, and he, he talked about loving the Carpenters like early on. Like there were certain things that you don't 
that seem incongruous. But but good music is good music, I guess. And what you end up doing doesn't have to be what you listened to. And so it's interesting. But you told me off mic that um, we're both big Rolling Stones fans. You had a an anecdote, <laughs> and I, certainly you are the your your supreme rock on tour. So. <laughs> Take it away. Take us down to. Well, I, I'm trying to figure out what I can tell you. That that's like so. So I'll start to tell a story, and now two lawyers standing by. So you go ahead, and if I get any kind of thumbs right. up again, I'll alert you. But go ahead. Okay. So anyway, it was just a Bob Dylan Rolling Stone story, and uh, you know, so Bob Dylan at Ocella, he had his back turned to everybody. He didn't want the camera to show his face. You know, the whole you know the whole thing. So I guess that. Backstage the table. This was a few years ago when, when uh, who was it? McCartney, um, Pink Stones, Rock, Dylan, uh, Neil Young, Neil Young, all played. What was, I forget what it was called in the desert. Desert, desert, desert. desert well, I don't know. They were calling it Old Cella. <laughs> yeah, desert. Is that we said? Desert, desert, desert something. I can't think of the name to it. I, I had tickets, but wound up not going. But it was a big, very you know, a big popular event. Very successful. Oh, that's great. And, it was great. Yeah. So just to give people the idea of what was going on. So, yeah. So I, I have, okay. So without naming a name, so I have friends that are really in the know out there. You know? So, you know, so whatever. And, 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 you know, and T.S. Well played Coachella and, you know, and, and we, T.S. Well actually did the very first show that Golden Voice ever did. So, so I've known those, you know, those guys forever for a long time. So where would that have been that first show? Uh, Santa Barbara. It was okay. at Santa Barbara, some funky little, uh, some funky little rec community center. By the and, way, uh, Des- Desert Trip was the name of the festival. There you go. So uh, anyway, so Bob Dylan had his back to everyone, had a real attitude, blah, blah, blah. And then the Rolling Stones come out and, and Mick Jagger says, hey, we want to thank little Bobby Dylan for opening up with us for us tonight. Right. And he says something and then they laugh. But I didn't really know why they laughed. And then later on, I found out why they laughed is because I guess Dylan wouldn't let anyone backstage in his area to talk to him except Sir Paul McCartney. He was the only one that was allowed to tell, like he wouldn't let any of the Stones guys come back or anything. And I guess Jagger, you know, had kind of got, you know, like, oh, well, I'll show him, you know. So so he walks on stage and says, I want to thank him for opening up for us tonight. Oh, <laughs> Just, funny. yeah. So, I, you know, whatever. It's a stupid little thing. But, you know, if you like music, it's kind of funny. So, so. Get going now again, you, you've been sober since, is it 1989? 89, yeah. Yeah. Long time yeah. ago. Um, how, talk about that, how it's affected your music, how it's affected your life, and what what maybe was the... The impetus right when it happened. Um, well, the, yeah, the funny thing is, I didn't even think I had a problem. You know, it's like, so what? You know what I mean? It's like, so what? I'm doing this and this and this. I'm doing high school stuff, man. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm you know, smoking weed and a little hash and, you know, some Coke and some pills and drinking. There's no problem. Mushrooms. There's no problem here. And, uh, you know, and my friends were the ones that were pushing me saying, hey, you got a problem. You got a problem. And, uh, Anyway, so, you know, I finally woke up to it about 1989. And then I thought that putting the stuff down was going to help me. <laughs> it didn't because all it did is took the sedation off me. And, right. uh, you know, it's like those wild animal TV shows that they used to wear all the time. You know, they're driving around and they shoot a tr- tiger with a tranquilizer gun and the thing goes down and they roll up and sex check it or whatever the hell they're doing and everybody's cool. But let me tell you something. 
they never roll up on a sober tiger. (laughs) So, so now I got the drugs and alcohol out of me and I'm a mess, man. And I just realized, and and the main, the bottom line was this total selfish, self-centered behavior. This, you do not exist to me. That kind of behavior that, uh, you know, I was made aware of. And, uh, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't pretty. It wasn't pretty. Like that's when Hunt said to me, one day you're going to find yourself and you're not going to be too happy about it. And just realizing the damage that I caused. So, so it's been a, it, you know, it's been almost 32 years now of staying sober and being aware of my actions and, you know, not always doing the right thing, but, you know, I mean, back then, 99 times out of 100, you roll up on me, some crazy, not good shit's happening. And then, you know, and now 90 times out of 99 times out of 100, you roll up and something's good and one bad day. But, hey, I got it. I just wanted to tell you one funny story because it's got to do with HB and the police and everything. So, okay. So my daughter now is 32 and she was a punk skinhead, went to Huntington high. It's like, I don't consider myself a local, but I consider my kids locals because they've grown up there and went to Dwyer and Smith and you know, blah, blah, blah. All right. Anyway. So I got the two kids in the car. It's early morning, early morning. And uh, I'm down at the cliffs checking out the surf. But, but one of the dog, you know, one of the kids has got to go to school. And my wife at the time was a real forceful woman, let's say forceful woman. And, uh, and, so, and, and so I got the baby in the back of the car. And then I've got my daughter, my skinheaded daughter in the front of the car. And it's got anarchy signs on her, whatever. You know, right? so, so we're down the cliffs checking out the surf. And then I start speeding home. I'm speeding home, right? Well, there's a cop that sits there with his motorcycle on Golden West, and he gets me, and he gets behind me, right? And I don't stop because I got to get home. I got to, I'm going to get yelled at by the wife. He can just follow me for all I care, right? So so I just keep going. Then he's like hitting the horn that goes, "Eh, eh, eh," you know, that horn, right? And my daughter, my, my little punk rock daughter, looks at me and she goes, Dad, the cops are behind us. I go, yeah, fuck him. <laughs> so now at that moment, my little skinheaded daughter realizes that the anarchy A on her jacket is made of cloth and her father is made of the real thing, right? So I got these kids in the car and I take this cop all the way down the pier because I live down by the pier, right? I, so I take him a mile. I'm not stopping, man. I, I even stop at the light on 17th the red light and then go again. Right? So, so they, I get to the house and he comes up and he's pissed and I, I ignore him. I say, I go, get your sister, get in there, get in the house. And, and the cop comes to the window and he goes, Hey, I got, I go, Hey buddy, I think I got a taillight out the back. Go check it out. I go, get your sister, get in that. So I'm just running wild. Right. So, so the kids get out and leave. I get out. The cop's mad. He's yelling at me. You know, I go, yeah, you're doing a good job champ. <laughs> now, if, that, if I was the cop, I would have went straight to the nightstick and got me for resisting and everything else. But what he did is he writes me this ticket, writes me this ticket, gives it to me. I take it in my hand. I say, you know what? I'm going to be wiping with this, buddy. You know, when I walk in the house, like total asshole, like full asshole. Right. So so now I go in the house. Now I'm sober when this is going on. I'm sober. OK, so I get to the house. I go in there, I'm hot, and then I start to calm down. 
I start to calm down. And now all this, you know, self-centered, you're a jerk. Now I start checking myself. Now I'm reviewing my behavior. And I realize I'm going to have to go and make an amends to this officer, apologize to him, you know. I'm thinking, oh, my God, I'm going to have to go down the station and do it, blah, blah, blah. So so about a week later, I haven't done it yet, but it's still in my mind. I know I got to do it, but I haven't done it yet. So a week later, I start walking. I'm walking down the, the bike trail there. I'm walking down the bike path, and I'm with my wife, and I see him. And I go, oh, my God, there he is. There he is. I go, I got to go. So I start walking up to him. And when I walk up to him, he stands up and he covers his holster with his one hand. And he puts his hand out. He says, all right, stop right there. Stop right there. I go, look, look, look. Look, it's not like that. I go, I just want to say that I know that you're out here doing a job. And I know that you're watching over the town. And I know that you're here doing this. And I just wanted to say that I'm sorry for the way I treated you. You didn't deserve to be treated like that for me, from me. And I hope that you can accept my apology. I, I'm sincerely sorry. And I start to walk away and he goes, hey, hey, hang on a minute. Hang on a minute. And uh, anyway, he lifts up his glasses and he's crying. He's like misty eyed and he sticks his hand out. and He says 20 years on the force. And that's the first time anyone's ever apologized to me. And uh, it was like a total, you know, it was like a total hug it out moment <laughs> at the thing. So, uh, so then after that, you know, I'd, I'd see him or a couple of the other guys, they'd pull me over and go, oh, Jack, hey, <laughs> just, you know. Man, that put tears in my eyes. That's incredible. That's actually, that's amazing. Yeah. And it's, uh, you know, it's funny. And I, I'd been pulled over like, you know, a couple of times where I run into somebody and they go, hey, you know, we hear you. We always hear good things about you. Good. Good to see you. Jack, when you wander the streets today of Huntington Beach, a lot's different, you know, since it was back in the late 70s, early 80s, when you were first surfing, hanging out, making music. What's it like for you when you see like the surf museum and you know it was Safari Sam's? Do you flash back? Do you remember what those streets were like? Would you rather not think about the past? What's it like for you today in your environment to just wander, given what you went through here? Well, it's a little, so, so I started like hanging out in Huntington in the 70s. So, so the changes I saw from them, yeah, yeah, it's different. I, the one thing that, that I don't like so much about the town sometimes is there's a sense of entitlement now. There's, a, there's this, in my opinion, it's just my opinion. Uh, a lot of these people, uh, I want to I be diplomatic when I say this. Uh, some of the small town feel is gone. Right. Like some of it's gone. You know, and I miss that. Uh, one of my favorite things, I walk every morning. So I'm always stopping and visiting people. I go over and see the girls, you know, the ladies at the post office. Like if I have a shipment, they'll let me come in an hour early. You know, and I bring them coffees and we sit and have coffee. And, you know, I like to walk around and visit and talk to people and, you know, everybody. Like, like that's, that's what I enjoy. And, and the city a little bit is stepping away from that just a touch. And, and I'm not happy with the pier area right now. I, you know, it's like, Hey, look, I'm all for a person's right to protest, Mm -hmm. you know, but let's, let's put them down on beach and beach and PCH. (laughs) Let's send them down, put them down by the state beach, man. Cause I got guys from out of town coming and, and I want to, I want to take them to the pier. I want to walk around. I want that family thing. I like the, 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 you know, so, so I do miss that a bit. I miss the, that. 
But it sounds like you're, you know, just the way you live your life, it sounds like you create your own kind of neighborhood vibe, you know, by, by knowing who you deal with, like whether it's the post office or where you get your coffee or wherever, that you're, you know, you, you're, you can create that there. And I think, you know, there's still enough people in Huntington that, that are like you, that love that, that like the sense of community and the fact of sort of generational layers of the, well, this one knows this one's son and the grandson and all that. We have a lot of that here, you know? Yeah. And it, as long as that's there, I think it helps balance and juxtapose against some of the more maybe corporate interests or political interests or whatever. And you can still find it if you know where to look and kind of live your life that way, you know? And, um, and you're right. Cool. You're right. You're, you are right about that. And it's funny because the kids like it. So, so, the, uh, you know, these kids have gone, my kids have gone through, uh, you know, Dwyer and Smith and Huntington High or whatever. So every new school year that starts, one of them will come home and say, hey, Pops, uh, my gym teacher wants a T.S. Well hat. <laughs> hey, hey, Pops, can you get a shirt for so-and-so? You know, so, so. Well, but see, that's the thing. What you created or helped create with that band, um, it's, it's a local emblem. I mean, it really is. It's just like being having been like a football star 30 years ago. There's memories that people associate with house parties with the, you know, with the local clubs and with that hardcore scene that for a lot of locals, it's, it's their youth. It's what they grew up with. It was the backdrop that they lived their life against, you know? Well, and we're still waiting for our star on Main Street. We're still waiting for the TSOL star <laughs> on Main Street. One thing, the, music, the musicians that have come out of the Huntington Beach area and seen it's real, it's significant, you know? There's a lot of you, and um, whether we're talking you know, Scott Weiland, or, or you can rattle off 20 right, bands, right. I'm sure, Avenge Sevenfold. And I, I think there, it is time to acknowledge the musical footprint of Huntington Beach. It totally is. People that have come from here and still live here. So maybe you and I can wrap our heads around that and think about the best way to get it together. Because it's real. I mean, it's a real thing here. And it, it's not been formally acknowledged, just sort of presented in a way that's meaningful, that teaches people about what it was like when you guys first kind of blew onto the scene, you know what I mean? Right. And we, you know, it's funny. I, I did have this discussion with a friend of mine who has done uh, a lot of, but he ended up, uh, he died. So, so it never went any further. All right. That's a terrible way to start starting in that little story. <laughs> <laughs> but what did you talk about with him? Well, we just talked about, you know, getting a place and getting a place and having a, almost a building dedicated to the Orange County music scene, because, yeah. you know, the one thing that people don't realize, even in the punk rock world, is that the sounds of Orange County the, and, and what went with that, the skateboarding, the surfing, all that, it, it changed culture across the world. Absolutely. I mean, it, it basically changed culture across the world. And yeah. uh, maybe, maybe that's one of our new little missions here. I, I love what you're saying with that. You're exactly right. So we're going to have to wrap up, Jack. We're at our, our hard break here. But listen, man, this this flew by. We've got to do a part two soon if you're up for it. Yeah, anytime. Right. And I appreciate it. Jack Grisham, TSOL, many other things. Good luck with the new book. Keep us posted on that. And uh, Jack, what's the website if people want to check out more about you and everything else? Uh, well, it's just uh, jackgrisham.com, but it's not finished. It's right. not well, finished. <laughs> it's always somewhere. Yeah. All right. Jack, thank you so much, man. This was a lot of fun. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you for taking a moment out of your busy week to join us for The Moment. 
Be sure to join Chris Epting for another edition every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time and 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you here next week.